Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, the art of meditating and meditating on art. Museums are getting into the mindfulness game. It seems to me that the museum becomes a sort of cultural arm of other entities that are using meditation for purposes that I don't think are so savory. And then you're going to die. None of us are getting out of this thing alive. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. I mean, what matters matters at the end of the day. To a saffron-robed Buddhist monk, meditation is part of a spiritual practice devoted to the relinquishment of self-centered desire and materialism. But this is America, baby, and I can't sell that. Meditation is now a multi-million dollar industry. The popular app Headspace alone is valued at $250 million, and everyone is hungry for a piece of that mindfulness pie. Museums are no exception, and our next guest wrote about this trend in a piece for The Baffler. It's called The Rise of the Mindful Museum. Michael Friedrich, welcome to 112BK. Thanks for having me. So you went to a few museums that are offering mindfulness or meditation sessions, including the MoMA. Tell me how you found out about this event. I cover art, and I get the newsletter from the museum. My curiosity was piqued when I saw that they had this quiet mornings program, which is meditation, and they open their galleries at 7.30 a.m., that ungodly hour. I meditate in my life. I thought this was an interesting intersection. I was determined to see what it was like, but my skepticism was also piqued by the fact that it was sponsored by this events promoter, Flavor Pill. As I did research, I discovered that this is actually a phenomenon, that there are all sorts of art museums across the country that are including a mindfulness component to their programming. And tell me about your own meditation practice. How did you come to that? Do you do it daily? I meditate daily, and I go to a Buddhist teaching center in the Kadampa tradition every Sunday. I came to that actually through trying to alleviate some of my own anxiety problems, and it's been helpful for that and truly been effective at at finding some kind of peace. And when you go to this Buddhist center, what are they teaching you about meditation? What's the goal of meditating in this Buddhist tradition? If you're meditating in a Buddhist tradition, the goal is enlightenment, ultimately. So it's a bit metaphysical and quite different from what we see, I think, in Western mindfulness practices today. It's part of what I was interested in looking at in the article. At the center, we do about 30 minutes of breathing exercises and guided meditation with a teacher. And then the teacher is doing Dharma teachings, so teaching from Buddhist texts. And how did that compare to the, the meditation session that you did at, at the MoMA? What I've been interested in tracking is how meditation in the culture has gone from, as you say, being a spiritual and philosophical practice that is really focused on finding meaning and purpose in life to, in the last few decades in America, more of a medical or therapeutic practice through mindfulness. So at the MoMA, the programming they offered, you know, I described this in the piece, there was a Mark Rothko piece projected in the background of this theater we sat in, darkened altogether, about 100 people. And there was an introduction by a couple of 
PR people, one from the MoMA and one from this company, Flavor Pill, that coordinates these sorts of events. Then we had a brief teaching from uh, this guide, Manaj Diaz, who is a finance professional turned meditator who does you know, kind of corporate meditation events. And he talked a bit about meditative practice, especially as it relates to mindfulness. What was curious about it is that in no way did it integrate the space of the museum, the artwork, even the Rothko that was presented there, or the exhibits that we'd been admitted to before the meditation. Um, and it was kind of tagged with this follow-up from the PR person from Flavor Pill, who took the mic and admonished us to use loving kindness throughout our day. Also, a fine thing to say, but to me, it meant somehow that the, the MoMA itself was like deploying this concept for some purpose mm-hmm. that I didn't want, wholly understand that I wanted to. So devil's advocate, you know, museums in an attempt to expand their guest base have all sorts of different, you know, parties for 25 to 35-year-olds after hours at the museum or, you know, other integrated programming. And this seems like an attempt to be a part of the zeitgeist of, of mindfulness. And as you said, you know, it's fine, maybe even positive to have people focus on the idea of loving kindness. So what do you think is the underlying problem to having museums and other cultural institutions hop on board the mindfulness bandwagon? Yeah, so I agree. Certainly the MoMA and other museums are kind of wedging visitors in at times they might not otherwise get visitors. It's an attraction. And if it's introducing people to practices that are helpful to them or introduce them to a more serious kind of meditation, I think that's wonderful. The problem for me is that, and what I write about at The Baffler, is that It seems to me that the museum becomes a sort of cultural arm of other entities that are using meditation for purposes that I don't think are so savory. And in the article, what I write about is that what we see is a more and more precarious work environment. And some of these mega, mega tech companies like Google and LinkedIn and Apple maybe are expecting their employers to do more with less to hustle much harder, to be on all the time and always responsive to email, say. And this produces extreme stress. And those same companies are buying bulk subscriptions of meditation apps like Headspace or sponsoring meditation sessions and trainings within the workplace. So I think you have this strange phenomenon where rather than addressing the workplace practices that are causing stress and the structural forces of late capitalism that demand that we do this kind of extreme and constant labor, you have these companies treating the problem themselves. That's part of what I'm looking at, where at one time there was a spiritual and philosophical practice in meditation. Now you have this kind of solution-oriented intervention for anxiety and stress, which is really consistent with the neoliberal economic mood we live in. Right. It's almost like how at one point companies were offering gym benefits, Mm. and now mindfulness is what they're offering in order to help employees de-stress so that they can then go back to work and be more productive. I guess I wonder if you didn't have that space for employees to clear their mind, would employees burn out and 
therefore agitate for better working conditions and unions and paid time contradictions. off. Exactly. Yeah. Is, is, is meditation uh, in a corporate context actually a way of subduing the worker and perpetuating capitalism as we know it? Let's talk a little bit about the Rubin because you went to both the MoMA and the Rubin, also the Brooklyn Museum. Mm-hmm. or, And the Rubin is actually an Asian art museum and has a very robust collection and also is quite sensitive to the cultures whose art it represents. So I'm wondering, did you feel any difference in the meditation that was led by the ex-financial services manager and the one that was at the Rubin Museum? Yeah, I have to admit, I really responded well to the Rubens program. And like you say, in a lot of ways, as a Himalayan art museum especially, they have the most legitimate claim on the practice. I thought, too, that it actually had an art object to focus on. There was this traditional ceremonial bowl used to melt yak butter, which was completely fascinating. And was um, this a projection or was this the actual object? It was object? also a projection, okay. you know, and it was something we could go see after the, the I mean, programming. so is our earthly existence, right? Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So you have this projection of a bowl used to melt yak butter. And so you found this to be a, a deeper, more meditative experience than the previous session at MoMA? It seemed more considered. It seemed more meaningful. I can say that I would do that one again and recommend it. As I say, I think it still fits into this this broad trend in the sense that it's it's offering something and, and sort of slotting it into the rhythm of the workday. I don't fault the Rubin for that, but I think it's it's in keeping with the same pattern we're seeing. Right. So we're kind of using mindfulness and meditation interchangeably, but mm-hmm. do you find that calling it mindfulness instead of meditation is just an attempt to sort of capture larger audiences or distance it from um, anti-materialistic values associated with Buddhism in order to bend mindfulness into capitalist structures? In short, yes. (laughs) And that's something I write about, too. Uh, So it's imported in a number of different ways, meditative practice. It's mindfulness, the term and the practice is most closely associated with um, John Kabat-Zinn, who was a University of Massachusetts medical professor who developed mindfulness-based stress reduction method, which is something of a a clinical practice. A lot of its goals are the same, and he himself was a Buddhist-trained practitioner. But in his writings, he's sort of stripped it of the metaphysical characteristics, things like past lives, things like karma. To make it more palatable to Westerners? I think so. Or I think so. And it, it certainly, whether or not that was the intention, that's been the effect. So it's become this sort of secular enlightenment. It's about paying attention in a special way, paying attention to your breathing, paying attention to your feelings non judgmentally. And that the result is an increased awareness and attentiveness and acceptance of your present moment reality. That's the goal, and that's a good goal as far as it goes. But I think, like you suggest, it has allowed Western audiences to really adopt it, and and it's also allowed some of these capitalist structures to adopt it without having to contend with more anti-materialist philosophies. Right. In addition to corporations incorporating mindfulness practices into 
the benefits that they offer their employees, the military and police have also started to adopt meditation and mindfulness. Can you talk a little bit about that and any cause for concern there? <laughs> so that's something I came across in my research also, is that a lot of um, law enforcement agencies and even some branches of the military have begun at least piloting meditation trainings. And so I think that's, that's a really interesting piece of this when you think about the museum as a sort of cultural arm using mindfulness to produce a docile populace. And when you think of owners of capital like Google doing the same, well, now you also have more repressive forces of the state who are interested in or charged with maintaining the power of the state. And they're also using mindfulness. What I think is really interesting is these are police and the military are the forces of violence. They're also confronted with a lot of violence. Police, at least, face, I believe, the highest rates of suicide, alcoholism, and divorce of any profession. So these are people who face extreme professional stress. And again, what you have here is rather than us examining the forces that are producing that kind of stress, the structural forces that require guardians, you know, violent guardians of the state, um, we have this, this training intervention that simply reduces their anxiety. Now, if that helps police not to hurt themselves or hurt unarmed people of color, that's a, that's a net good. But I also think it's, it's a clever way of eliding the structural problem. Yeah, it seems like there is this tension where it's like the individual absolutely can be helped by meditation and mindfulness and the positive health effects have been proven. But at the same time, if it just acts as some sort of like cultural soma that prevents people from challenging larger structures, maybe we should be examining that. I think that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> um, well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. you're older than you've ever been and you're speeding towards death like a mindfulness startup speeding towards Series A funding, or a white meditation girl speeding towards cultural appropriation, or Jared Kushner speeding towards jail time. For the most part, we try to avoid thoughts of our own mortality, but one podcast wants you to do just the opposite. The Adventures of Memento Mori helps its listeners get cozy with death in order to lead a fuller life. We welcome producer and host D.S. Moss to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So first, I'm not going to die, right? I uh, hate to be the one to break it to you. Yeah. I also will die. You will die. Okay. I'm uh, sorry. Okay, cool. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the show? Give us a broad overview. Yeah, so the, the show is The Adventures of Memento Mori, A Cynic's Guide for Learning to Live by Remembering to Die. And uh, the hypothesis is, or was, I guess, because it's evolved since we started, that if you could actually reconcile your own impermanence, then you should be able to live a better life. And that sounds like a cliche, but we were trying to put that cliche to the test. And what was the impetus for starting the show? 
Well, first I would say that, that I was probably born uh, with an existential crisis. So I, I've always been searching for meaning on some level. And then the actual true story is uh, I was trying to uh, woo a, a woman who was asked me if I had a podcast, what would it be on? Mm-hmm. And I had been reading all of like the traditional existentialist writers, mm-hmm. feel like Camus and Sartre and all these guys. And I had stickies on my, but my desk about angst and dread. And then it hit me like, well, if I were to have a podcast, it would be on death. It would be on trying to find meaning in life through the lens of death. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to do a podcast on death. There's a lot of discussion of death and content and media created around death, but usually it's salacious death and violent death, you know, like true crime podcasts or serial killer TV shows. But there are very few pieces of cultural output that talk about the quieter death that most of us face. Why do you think that is? And why did you want to grapple with that? Well, I think it is because people are scared to death of their own death. They're scared to death of death. Yeah. There is this natural shield of their death versus my death. Do you think other cultures do it better than we do it here in the U.S.? Oh, oh yes. In the second half of season two, we actually dive into death in America, where we uh, go into the death penalty and consumerism slash capitalism and, and see how death relates to that. What is it about America? I think because it could be many things. Space, typically, we don't live in communities that are tight and generational. You know, even a traditional dirge that you see in like Italy, like that, we don't, we don't have tradition. I think we're, we're a country that has many traditions from other places, but as a, as a tradition, like a village tradition, we, we just don't have that. Sure. And and birth and death are sort of outsourced and they happen in hospitals. Yeah. And that's and that's purely capitalism. Mm. You know, post post the Civil War, birth and death was something that happened in the home. And it was traditionally a female occupation, which was birth care and death. Uh, care. uh Yeah. And then that was it was taken out of the home and made to be industrial. And then that's when you started seeing these ten thousand dollar pieces of furniture that they would be sold to people. I mean, it's, it's an easy sell when someone's grieving and crying to be like, show how much you love them by spending this amount of, amount of dollars right. to represent that. It seems like one of the most extreme examples of that is, is cryogenic suspension. Walt Disney and Ted Williams like freezing their heads in the hopes that they will eventually come back to life and live again. Like talk about fear of death. Especially you, you'll find more with people of, uh, of fame. So Silicon Valley is the hub for longevity uh, sector and research and immortality research. In one of your episodes, you talked about obituary culture. And you wrote an obituary for your grandfather, uh, who was alive, and, alive, and had him read it. Can you tell me what you were aiming for with that exercise and how your grandfather felt about it. So my dad had asked me to interview my grandfather for his obituary, and I was nervous about it. Um, You can even tell in the podcast, I couldn't even get out a sentence. He didn't know what the interview was about, you know, so it was was a very awkward. You did tell him. You weren't like, so tell me about your childhood. I told him, yeah, I told him up front. Okay. He actually got a, a kick out of it. But with all of that being said of, of like the hesitation going into it, it was so worth it because I don't think, again, just going back to, to talking about these things, how do you want to be remembered? 
how, what is your legacy? What is important to you? And so what the sort of, I don't want to give away the ending, but it was revealing in that it's not necessarily important what your legacy is. It's what you thought was important in the life that you lived. Henry was born in Binghamton, New York, to the proud parents, Abraham and Goldie Cluardi. He was an only child because the Cluartys knew that they had gotten it perfect the first time. Henry was popular amongst his neighborhood friends and was always there to tell a funny joke. And so it also broke down, what is, who is an obituary for? Right. It, essentially, it's, it's a news article. It, just like the front page of the New York Times, the obituary section in the New York Times is a piece of news. Is it a celebration of their life? Not really. And also, who decides who gets obituaries written about them? Right. Who decides whose life was important enough or noteworthy right. enough? Mm -hmm. And I know the New York Times uh, has recently unveiled a section that is going back and revising yeah. all of the obituaries of women and people of color that they That's awesome. yeah. skipped over. What was the biggest surprise thus far in your making of this podcast? The biggest surprise? I would say three things. One is there's no such thing as, as meaning. There's no uppercase purpose. Like what is, we all have purpose in life and you need to go out and search and find your purpose. What that ultimately does, it makes people unhappy because they feel like they can't attain this thing on top of a mountain that you are predestined when you're born. I, I found that that's, that is a narrative that's not true. Mm -hmm. You can very much live purposefully and should live purposefully in your daily life. Um, but there is no... Capital P purpose. Capital P purpose. Yes. Uh, tied into that was, was, was the idea of letting go. Um, which was really hard for me to do. I like to control things. Mm -hmm. And so the, 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 to be able to let go, life is so much better when, when you don't necessarily need to have expectations. And, and this is, we go into this in season two about how America is particularly good at selling this idea of goals, goals, goals. Um, and more often than not, it just creates misery in people. And then... The third thing, where I guess it was still tied into maybe this, the second thing, is that it's narrative. If we actually take a step back and peel things back, it's, we've made this all up. It's important to control the narrative of what happens between when you're born and when you die. Yeah, yeah. So has this quest for meaning uh, by delving into death helped you think about your own death? How oh, yeah. would you? Oh, yeah. How would you like to die? Um, I mean, I'd like to die in like a bed at like, I think 88 was sort of the target age with friends and family. That's the... 88 is very lucky in Chinese culture, by the way. Oh. The, the number eight. Then that, hopefully that's my lucky, my lucky age. Uh, I, at first I wanted to be cremated. Mm -hmm. Then I actually watched, I saw the process. And now I, I absolutely don't want to be cremated now. It's just not a, not a very cinematic process. There you go, controlling narratives again. There I go, yeah. controlling narratives. That's not what I want. There are many new things uh, that are eco-friendly. So right now, my, so my disposition is natural burial in a shroud in like a forest. Return you to the forest. Return me to the forest. Uh, before all that happens, as you are on your deathbed, have you given thought to what you hope your last reflection is? Yeah, it'd just be, um, I did it okay. It's common that people have regret on as they reflect. And part of this exercise, the show for me, has been able to be like, oh yeah, 
none of us are getting out of this thing alive. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. I mean, what matters matters at the end of the day. And so I've been able to, to redirect that. And even in, to refer back to the, the obituary one, which was incredibly useful without having known it before we started, was the idea of writing your own obituary and how do you want to be remembered. And so it beats the heck out of writing a New Year's resolution. You can say, this is what I want my legacy to be. This is how I want to be thought of when I'm gone. Um, allows you to do a little bit of an integrity course correction. Sure. It's probably not like she had a really nice car yeah. and went on a great vacation yeah. and she posted a photo and got a ton of likes for it. Yeah. Yeah. So if people want to listen, where do they go? They, well, it is called The Adventures of Memento Mori and can be found on any of your favorite podcatchers. But you can go to www.remembertodie.com. Great to URL. Listen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great. That is the show for today. But the fun's not over. We'll be back Friday to talk about the extinction of our species. Let's call it death by climate change. But can we slow it down with a Green New Deal? We'll discuss. Hope you can join us. Woman2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Point Solo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 